I'm going to ask you to turn in your copy of the Word to 1 Peter chapter 2. First Peter chapter 2. Today we're focusing on verses 6 through 8. I'm going to be reading from verse 4 as we get everything in context through verse 10. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Then verse 6, for it stands in Scripture... Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So, the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobeyed the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you have sent to us your cornerstone, Jesus Christ, and that on him rests the foundation of our entire belief. We thank you that you have used him to to give us mercy, that we have received it from you. For those that have not tasted that mercy, Lord, I pray that they would come to know who you are, that even today you would draw them to you, God. And I pray that each of us would learn and know be shown how to build our, build our house on your rock, not on, the, not on the sand, but on the rock of Jesus Christ. In the name of him I pray, amen. This is a fascinating passage, and it has been for me for a long time, and a difficult one. I don't know how old I was when I heard, I don't even know if it was a Sunday school lesson, or I think it was a sermon, but I remember growing up thinking about this cornerstone story. And this was before I knew really what a metaphor was or an analogy. It was almost like I didn't know what a simile was. I didn't have that understanding. So when whoever taught it taught us about the cornerstone, I imagined a literal uh, place where these builders were building this uh, this building, this house, this temple. And somebody brought them a cornerstone and said, here's the one. Here's the one you need to use. And they said, no, we can't use that. And they threw it over the wall, and it was discarded. And they got to the end of it. I don't think this is how architecture works, but they got to the end of the building, and they, they couldn't find the cornerstone. And um, it was the wrong one, and the whole thing collapsed. And then somewhere else over here, somebody took the cornerstone and built the house the way that it needed to be built. I thought that was a literal story, Uh, but it has 
a literal definition. It's kind of funny, or at least it's humorous to me. I remember the first time I read through the Bible, one of the thoughts in my mind was finding that story. Because I had gone through concordances. This was before Google. So I couldn't go and Google, where is the cornerstone story? And I I was so excited because I could never find it. And I read through the whole Bible. Not because of that, but that was in the back of my mind. Where is it? I see see 1 Peter. I see Isaiah. Where is this story? And I must have missed it. It was maybe around the second time that I thought, oh, metaphor. Um, But the metaphor has a very real, literal meaning. That... God, is, as Joshua shared last week, is building the spiritual house. And we are the stones that he is using, but there is a foundation, a cornerstone, a foundation stone that has to be built upon, and that is Jesus Christ. God sent him to the world, and his own people rejected him. They tossed aside that cornerstone. But the one that they tossed aside, that they dishonored, God honored him by raising him from the dead. And then through that, he is building his church, his people, his building, his, his, uh, all these things that we read in verses 4 and 5. And he is the stone, and we are the stones as well. Now, like I said, we're focusing on verses 6 through 8. I want to go back and very briefly remind you of some things in the first uh, verses 4 and 5 here. It says, as you come to him, a living stone. That is still applying as we get to the scripture where he shows that this is where it stands in, in the scripture. Uh, we are coming to him actively. Joshua shared last week how this is an ongoing pursuit of God. It is a craving of God. As you are continually seeking him out uh, in your life, we keep that in mind as we come to these verses here that... We are being built in as a stone. And he is this living stone. And then verse 5, we are living stones as well, where God is building up this metaphorical, but, but very true and real spiritual house, and a holy priesthood. Focusing on this spiritual house imagery of what God is building, that's something that is ongoing through the entire Bible, all the way back in the Old Testament. We'll look at some of those verses today. But throughout there, we see... Among other things, God is doing something, and God is building something. I was reminded of David. You go back to 2 Samuel. It happens to be in chapter 7. David wanted to build God a temple. And he said to the prophet Nathan, I dwell in the house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And then briefly, with Nathan's blessing... Uh, David decided he was going to build God a house. And if you remember that, that, that passage, God's reaction is very fascinating because that sounds like a very good thing to do, build God a house, build God a temple. But he said, I have not lived in a house since the day I brought the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. He shows in his response how he had never said, why have you not built me a house of cedar? And then he goes on and says, not what David was going to do, but he reminded David of what God had already done for him and for the people of Israel, and then what he, God, was going to do. I'm going to read a couple of verses there. I need to remember, within context, these verses are actually a direct reference to Solomon. And 
uh, and David's offspring. Solomon was going to build the temple, but they also point to the offspring of David and of what God was ultimately going to be doing through the son of David, Jesus Christ. Uh, It's interesting. Verse 10 says, And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. Moreover, the Lord declared to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be a son." And we always have to be careful not to take things out of context. He shall build a house for my name. Solomon would build the house for his name. But again, ultimately, this points to God building this house through the foundation of Jesus Christ. He had been doing this for a long time with Jesus as that living stone. What does it mean that he is a living stone? How how is he a living stone? Because God raised him from the dead. He lives. He's Emmanuel. He is God with us. In, in Peter, where he is, in verse, uh, the verse that we're going to come to, he says, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. In fact, Jesus you know, took the disgrace of the cross and the shame of being crucified on the cross, but ultimately God honored him by raising him from the dead and giving him the name that is above every name. And then verse 5, we are the living stones. How are we living? Because God has done the same thing in us. We were once dead in our trespasses and sin, but he caused us to be made alive through Jesus Christ. And in this community, in this family of God that he is building, we are the ones that he is using to build that through, build that up. A very quick but very important aside here in these passages where uh, Peter is talking about the stone and the building and the cornerstone being the foundation, uh, the Catholic religion takes uh, the fact that, that Jesus gave Peter a name that means rock. And then we have the confession of Peter in Matthew 16. And And the Catholic religion takes that to turn it into a misleading and and untrue doctrine. Um, Jesus asked who people said the Son of Man was. And then he asked, what did the disciples say? And Peter said, well, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And, And Jesus goes on to call him the rock. And he says that on this foundation, I will build my church. But he is not establishing a pope here. And one of the ways that we know that is because Peter himself comes here and he's showing where the foundation actually is. And he does not say, I am the foundation, I am the cornerstone, I am, uh, I am what is being built upon. I'm grateful that it was Peter that God used to write this particular passage. If he were the foundation stone, this would be the most natural place to explain it. But we don't go out there as we evangelize and try to lead people to Peter. Try to lead them to Christ. Uh, Joshua shared a commentary with me, a baker, where a baker wrote, not even a hint, there's, there's not even a hint that Peter thought of himself as being a special or foundational stone in the church. 
his silence here, where a suggestion would be most natural, lends support to the understanding that the rock of Matthew 16, 18, on which Christ will build the church, is the confession of Jesus being the Christ, not Peter himself. So like I said, a very brief aside, an important one. And that brings us now, with that introduction, to verse 6. And then we'll be spending our time there uh, throughout the rest of this passage. Uh, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Peter is quoting Isaiah chapter 28 here. We're going to look at that briefly in just a moment. Uh, This was written some 800 years before uh, Peter wrote this uh, this passage. Uh, Let's look at that. Isaiah chapter 28, 16. The wording is slightly different here. You can look with me or you can stay in Peter. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes in him will not be in haste. So Isaiah is building this image that Peter quotes from with with, with different layers. God has, has given us a foundation. Jesus is that foundation. He is the stone we're not going to look at the passage, but I, I couldn't help but being reminded of Jesus' uh, parable of building your house on, this, on the rock as opposed to building your house on the sand. And we want to make sure that our house is built on that stone. Jesus is a tested stone. He is a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. We, we can be confident when our faith is placed in him. We can be confident that although there are trials that we will be going through, that God will ultimately take care of us. Peter is writing to a people that we're going through trials and through persecution. And as, you go th- as we go through this book, we're going to see his message to them and why they can have a hope. And ultimately, the reason that they can have this hope is because they have this foundation of who Jesus is. What do we do then with the part of this verse, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. We know that followers of Christ are persecuted, and they will be going through trials. We we prayed for the trials of those in Ukraine this morning. To Peter's initial readers, uh, they were also going through trials, and they saw honor as a very real, very tangible, and, and precious thing. And to be shamed was to suffer a great loss. And they were, in fact being shamed publicly, uh, being ridiculed, and being, uh, facing a lower social status just by converting to Christianity. Uh, J.H. Eliot wrote that they received a barrage of verbal abuse designed to demean and discredit and shame the believers as social and moral deviants endangering the, the common good. So they were facing uh, quite a lot of hardship and facing the loss of their honor. We often do that, uh, do that too in our world as well. But just as Jesus was rejected, we are going to be rejected. Just as God ultimately honored Jesus by raising him from the dead and giving him honor upon honor, he will also honor us 
ultimately we will not be put to shame. Staying, uh, I just want to read a couple of other, ver- the next two verses in Isaiah 28, 16, the next two verses go along with this idea. It says, and I will make justice the line, the line and righteousness the plumb line. And hell will sweep away the refuge of lies, and waters will overwhelm the shelter. And then listen to this, verse 18. Then your covenant with death will be annulled, and your agreement with Sheol will not stand. When the overwhelming scourge passes through, you will be beaten down by it. We will be beaten down, but the ultimate shame of being separated from God, the death is not ours anymore. Our covenant with, with death has been erased, has been annulled, has been taken away. God will honor us. And so it says in verse 7, the honor is for you who, who believe. We have that, that confidence. We have that hope. But what of those who do not believe? Peter is clear here. The honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, in verse 7, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And verse 8, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble. Why? Because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. This word that they are disobeying is, in fact, the gospel and the gospel, the only true gospel of Jesus Christ. It says that the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. We spent a little bit of time on that analogy. The corner, uh, without the cornerstone, the entire building would crumble. And without Jesus, any plan of salvation or of hope, any plan of coming to know God, of being with God, will also crumble. Look at uh, Psalm 118, verse 22, which is the one that is being quoted here. Uh, according to one of the study Bibles I looked at, this is the most quoted verse from the Old Testament in the New Testament. I didn't go and count, but I have no reason to, to doubt that. Uh, Jesus himself applied this passage to predict his own rejection that was, that was coming. Psalms. 118, verse 22. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Remember that this was foretold for ages. I've already shared how Isaiah was written about 800 years before the events that Peter is writing about. Uh, This psalm was written somewhere around 1084 B.C., so over 1,000 years before Jesus was born and some 30, 40 years, 50 years after that. Psalm 118 is a psalm of deliverance, just like Psalm 34 was, which Peter also quoted earlier in chapter 2. And when I came and read through Psalm 118 again, I almost wanted to stop and preach an entire sermon just to unpack the entire psalm. We're not going to do that. It's not what I was asked to do. It's an amazing psalm. If you want to have... Some homework for tonight after that. Uh, Mark that in your Bibles. Go back and read through it. So much, uh, so much greatness in there. It is the last of the Passover Psalms. Commentaries tell us that Jesus probably sang through those Psalms 
on the night of his crucifixion, uh, which would have meant that he would have sang through this one as well. I wanted to share just four verses from it. Going one verse back from what was quoted, verse 21, I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. These, these verses, and in fact the entire chapter, would have been very familiar to uh, the readers of, of, of Peter here. We can rejoice and we can be glad in the fact that God is our salvation and the fact that Jesus has become that in which we rely. And this, again, I say this word, uh, this word picture, this cornerstone, this building, the spiritual building, us being placed into it, it's not a new idea. God had prepared it throughout the Old Testament. Um, this passage in Psalms, I, I, I really wanted to go all different directions with it, and, and it actually quotes from Exodus. So you can go back even more several hundreds of years of God's plan throughout the ages of what he was going to do. It is not, uh, I can't remember where I heard this. It might have been Joshua, it might have been another pastor, maybe it came from myself. It's, it's not plan B. It's not, well, this didn't work, so let's give this a try. It's not a surprise to God. It's God's choice. And First Peter here, what he is showing us here, it is God's choice with respect to his son Jesus. It is his choice in respect to unbelievers. And for those of us that believe, it is his choice in respect to his church. This was all decided before the foundation of the world, that God was going to send a Savior, a stone, a living stone. That Savior was his son and is his son. And the world that he sent him to would reject him. I shared that Jesus had used this same passage that Peter uses to predict his death, or rather predict his death and his betrayal. Uh, that's in each of, the, uh, each of the Gospels. I'm going to read to you from Mark chapter 12. As this idea gets, uh, gets expanded upon. So in Mark chapter 12, you have Jesus' parable of the vineyard or of the, of the tenants. And you had a man who had planted this vineyard and sent a servant to the tenants of the vineyard to collect some of the fruit. Why else do you have a vineyard and if not to have some of the fruit? And the servant that they, beat, that they sent, they beat. And so he sent more servants. And some of those servants, Jesus said, they beat. Some of those servants, they killed. This is a picture of what, uh, what the people did to the prophets that God sent to them. And so then the man said, well, I'll send my own son to them. They'll respect him. And when they saw the son, they took him and they beat him and they killed him. What, would this man's, what should this man's response be to something like that? What should God's response be to something like that? Because this is a, uh, a picture of what is happening with God sending his prophets and then ultimately his son. 
we see that response in Mark 12, picking up in verse 9. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Having not read the scripture, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And this was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. That is God's response. We see in in 1 Peter that these people are stumbling. They're stumbling over, over the sun. They're stumbling over God's own plan. They have rejected the cornerstone by, by killing the son. And we are no better than, than the, the people that crucified Jesus. Because it is our sins as well that he died for. We are just as, just as guilty of that. So what hope do we have? The hope is in placing our trust in Jesus. Uh, Peter shows us here that the people stumbled because they disobeyed the word. I said that they disobeyed the gospel. The gospel being that God has, um, is a holy God. And he has given us a choice of whether we are going to be holy and follow his word or turn against him and sin. And to a person, each of us has chosen to sin. But God is merciful. And even though sin has a, a consequence, sin has the consequence of death and ultimate death and eternal damnation, God is merciful and he sent his son and this was the stone, and the, they, he was rejected, and he was crucified, and God raised him from the dead. And if we put our trust in him and him alone to be forgiven of our sins and be justified before a holy God, then God will, God will save us and redeem us. In fact, he already has through the work of Jesus. But for those that don't believe, Peter is quoting Isaiah chapter 8. In Isaiah chapter 8, verse 14. Again, to get this in context, I'm going to go back to verse 11. In Isaiah chapter 8, verse 11. For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me, and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear. Nor be in dread, but the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary, and here it is, and a stone of offense, and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken, and they shall be snared and taken." God is a sanctuary to those that believe in him, Isaiah shows us. He is offensive to those that do not. What does that mean? The exclusivity of the gospel, which is the exclusivity of Jesus, is offensive to those that are perishing. Because he is the only way to come to a holy God. He's also their their very need. In verse 8, Peter is saying that they, they stumbled because they disobeyed the word. And this is a hard reading. They disobeyed the word as they were destined to do. What, what do we do with this? 
the first part of the sentence is, is easy. I heard a pastor preach through this, and he said the first part of this verse is easy to get an amen out of that. But the second part of it, not so much. They disobey the word. They reject Jesus. They reject his gospel. And rejection of Christ shows that one has at least not yet been born again into this living hope. Uh, there's one pastor that I, I've enjoyed listening to over the years uh, named Richard Caldwell Jr. He's out of um, Founders Baptist Church. And I mentioned his name because I, I wanted to give this quote exactly the way that he put it. If you want to know who will perish one day, just watch who stumbles over Jesus, and you will discover to those whom he is the stumbling stone. There's many people that think that they are doing the work of God. There's many people that think they can come to God any way that they want to. We can look at groups of people uh, within uh, Peter himself. Uh, he's, he's going to go on to talk about um, the, the chosen race. We could look at the, at the Jewish people. We could look at, we could look at people within the church. We could, we could probably even look at people within our church that think that, that, think that they are following God when in fact they have tried to come to God a different way than through Jesus. Those are the people that are rejecting him. Those are the people that are stumbling over him. And, then, and they, uh, they will be put to shame. They will have an eternal judgment. We see him, Jesus, as Lord. We see him as Savior. We see him as resurrected. He is the way, the truth, the life, the only way to know God. But to others, they stumble over him as they were destined to do. Here's where we need to be uh, careful to let the Bible say what it says. Some will read this to say that God has destined unbelievers to perish. And that is true, and that is a true reading of, of this passage I think it's a little stronger than that, though. God had a plan to save some people. This means that he also made a choice in who he would save. Now, this does not mean that God himself is damning the unbelievers. He is not the author of evil. He is not the author of unbelief. For those of us that believe in the cornerstone... God has intervened. He chose to intervene. Those that don't believe and that never believe, he simply leaves to their choice. So the choice of deciding to save someone is not the same choice of, it's not equal to the choice of him saying, well, this is a person that is going to go to hell, and this is a person that is going to go to hell. We all, left to our choices, decided that we would go on the, be on the path to destruction. But God is merciful, and he chooses to save some. I believe that this is right, but I also believe it's right and necessary to do what God has instructed us in Scripture. It's right for us to pray to him, to petition to him for unbelievers. It's right to evangelize. While I firmly believe in the sovereignty of God in all things, uh, something that has stuck, struck with me for, for years, 
I was in an evangelism conference, and they, for, for some reason, they decided to go into uh, this, this topic of election and, and where is God's choice. And they, did, they decided not to try and cover it, but he said, for those of us that do believe that God is sovereign in his choice of, of everything, isn't it interesting that the people that tend to become believers are the ones that we tend to share the gospel with? not only a command, it is a pure and a right thing for us to do. I believe it is also right for, for the unbeliever, as, as he is coming or she is coming to Christ, to pray, you know, get, help my unbelief, lead me to you. And with all of this, we have a foundation that we can trust in. Now we are God's people. Uh, the, the verses that will be covered next week talk about how, we were, how once we were not a people, but now we've been made into God's people. When, I, when we look at the unbelievers here in, in these verses, they, they stumble because they disobeyed the word as they were destined to do. All of us, before God redeemed us, stumbled over this. But he calls us out of it. So our... our our responsibility here is to obey the word and to follow him. And back to verse 4, as you come, as you are going, continue coming to, coming to Christ. We are a chosen race. Who was the chosen race in the Old Testament? It was Israel, right? What did Israel do to deserve being chosen by God? Nothing, right? What did any of us do to be chosen by God? The same thing, nothing. It is God's mercy and grace to send us this cornerstone. He is making us, through that, a people for his own possession. For now we can say that we are one of God. We are God's people. Once we had not received mercy, next week we'll see, now we have. And this is very practical. This entire entire passage is is very practical, I believe. Ask yourself this as you go through the trials and the struggles, as you're beaten down uh, for your faith or just through what is happening in the circumstances of your life. Did God love you and show you this mercy and choose you before the foundation of the world and send his son to redeem you only to abandon you in your time of need? Surely not. Our call to action is as we come, as we pursue, as we crave, believe. If these people have stumbled because they have not believed, continue to believe and continue to put our trust in the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, in the God who sent Jesus, the living stone, to build us up into his spiritual house. Don't disobey the gospel, but be obedient and come to him. And as we do that, pray that others will be drawn to him. I pray that God would use us to draw others to him. And all the while, know that because we have this firm foundation, we can, we can, we can last, we can, we can exist, we can thrive, we can have a hope that may be unknown to the rest of the world. It's encouraging, and I hope to leave you with that. Let's pray. Father God... You are our, your son, Jesus, is our cornerstone. You have been merciful and gracious to send him to us, Lord. 
Help us to continue to taste and see how good you are, to crave you, to seek after you, to obey your word. Make us into the people that you want us to be. May it all be on the foundation of the Son that you have sent. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen.